Stand and deliver. Hello and welcome to the Stand and Deliver comedy podcast. My name is Rodders. To be technically specific, it is a podcast about comedy, but sometimes it's sort of incidentally funny. It's a little extra that is bolted on the Stand and Deliver Comedy Club, uh, which is in Reading. And the last time we did shows was back in October at the good old Jolly Anglers in their absolutely spectacular pub garden. Now, usually I'd say, oh, this podcast is a peek behind the curtain uh, into the world of stand-up comedy and live comedy and performance and stuff, but there's not been anyone behind any curtain in a comedy club for quite some time. Um, so to be honest, I've, I, I struggle to, to, to think of what on earth to do for this episode because it's been a while. I interviewed my uh, uh, comedy, uh, my comedian housemate, Dan. That uh, was all very interesting, uh, the last episode. So uh, do listen back to that if, if you missed it. Um, and I, I did think, oh, maybe I should interview lots of comedians on Zoom because, uh, you know, we're not doing a great deal. So there'd be lots of time to do that. But I, I didn't want to sit there and just sort of, a lot of podcasts were doing that, which is fine. But I didn't want to join in and do it because I thought oh I'd be a bit depressing wouldn't it or oh, remember when we when having fun wasn't completely illegal uh so I just thought it would it would make me a bit bit fed up so I, I didn't do that so today uh, I've gone for maximum self-indulgence our guest today on the Stand and Deliver comedy podcast is me uh, Rodders uh, <laughs> uh yeah I decided to uh well uh have my girlfriend Jordan interview me. And look, if you can't be self-indulgent on your own blooming podcast, when can you? And uh, hopefully I've been doing enough comedy over the years to have accumulated uh, a reasonable amount of anecdotes and hold your attention for a while. I think it's safe to say I've definitely done that. Um, yeah, incidentally, cleanfeed.net is absolutely brilliant if uh, you want to be interviewed by someone who isn't in your house. Uh, I'd advise that if you are a podcaster out there. It uh, tends to be much better than any of the uh, alternatives. It's, it's what the professionals use. And uh, if it's just one person you want on the other end of the line, um, it's it's free. So, uh, you know, why not? High quality and free. Those are two things that don't normally go together. Now, before we get on to uh, listening to my own interview, um, <laughs> there has been some news. Um, a rival comedy club, uh, Mates Rates Comedy, uh, in, in Reading, uh, run by uh, the, the uh, excellent Nick Bayard. Uh, hopefully I'm saying his name right. I've known him long enough and I've got it wrong nearly every time I've, I've had to mention his surname. Has also uh, joined the uh, 40 million comedians who do podcasts and he does this uh, excellent live show called the sunday morning writing session and uh, fair play for getting up for 11 a.m on a sunday i think that is commendable i tend to watch it uh, from my bed he streams it on twitch and uh, he has two guests on short interviews mostly about comedians writing styles and he also has uh, all sorts of other guests on there he's had a, had a burlesque dancer he's had someone who's a, a dungeon a dungeons and dragons enthusiast he's had all cuts sorts of people on there uh but I, I think Nick is also responsible for I think one of the funniest moments in <laughs> podcasting in 2021 I, I think he is 
peaked and uh, stolen the best comedy moment in podcasting uh, when, should we just say, Nick had his Jeremy Hunt moment when introducing comedian Liz Guterbock. I mean, it goes without saying, but this clip contains strong but hilarious language. Let's not talk about my material anymore because we've got some really fantastic guests that are going to be on the podcast. So our first guest, she's a con- a, a comedian. A comedian <laughs> a- <laughs> we can't ignore what you just did. There's no weakening. <laughs> Our first guest is a cunt. No, we can't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't mean to do that. Uh, oh, God. I'm just stumbling my words. That was the best stumble ever. <laughs> <laughs> That's the next clip we're using to advertise this no. show. <laughs> we're going to edit that out because um, it's not how I... Our next guest is a comedian based in... <laughs> in London she's really funny <laughs> she's, she's yeah she's great and she's d- done a really good job Let, let's talk to her now she's before, not I, she's not before I say before I say anything terrible uh, Liz Scootabot can you join the hey Liz hi hi um, please um, don't edit that out because <laughs> that is like I was see the thing that you meant to say you meant to say our next guest has a cunt <laughs> You know the other thing, yeah. Yeah, I didn't. I, mean, I, I, honest... could, I could have one and be one. That is possible. There's but... nothing subliminal going on there. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> that clip is just absolutely brilliant. I mean, it wouldn't be half as um half as funny without the uh, absolute delight his co-host Carl takes in the whole instant, and just how mortified Nick is. Uh, to be honest, if you weren't a little bit mortified, then it would probably make you a terrible person. I mean, nobody can use that word uh, and not feel a little bit guilty, especially if the recipient is completely undeserving. To watch some clips from the Sunday writing session, and to find out how to watch it live, go to facebook.com forward slash matesratescomedy. Now, I've done a lot of radio and podcasting in my time, so it's probably only fair that I share uh, my on-air sweary gaffes. I haven't got one that is that spectacular, uh, fortunately or, or unfortunately, depending on your point of view. Uh, I mean, on, on Hospital Radio Reading, um, it, <laughs> I had an instant where uh, my co-host turned up late and I said, uh, uh, you deserve to be beat over the head with a big stick. Unfortunately, I said shit instead of stick. Uh, that, that was quite bad. Um, thankfully, I've never said anything appalling on an actual FM commercial station, which is be honest with you quite frankly a miracle although i did manage to take uh, three stations off air on, on a on a on, on i think it was the, the breeze radio network that was my first cover show for them um but i think probably the most mortifying incident i had was again on hospital radio reading um because uh, you often get patients calling in and uh, you, you have to chat with them but small talk's a bit difficult when someone's calling in from a hospital ward because you uh, you can't ask how they are because obviously they're not very well they're in hospital and you don't really want medical details uh, so uh, I, I knew this this lady was calling from uh, one of the wards which has a particularly nice view over the over the London Road area of Reading and it's, it's quite beautiful overlooks the uh, one of the older university campuses um, and so I asked her oh uh, what, what's the view like outside your window this evening and she just goes I'm blind. I was like, oh, 
<laughs> it's like the, I, I wanted the studio to uh, ground to open up and swallow me as the old saying goes that was a uh, pretty awful I did, I, did, I did feel pretty bad for that one <laughs> um, but also I was a little bit angry at the woman couldn't she have just, just played along couldn't you have just said oh it's quite nice tonight <laughs> I mean she really really dropped me in it <laughs> oh dearie me Oh, I should also probably add, I will be appearing live on Nick Byard's Sunday morning writing session uh, on a Sunday in May. I will post all, all about it and uh, hopefully he, he won't swear at me because I'll, I'll probably cry. I'm, I'm quite fragile usually on a, on a Sunday morning. Okay, we'd better get a move on with this podcast. We are wasting precious time and precious megabytes. Our next guest it is me, uh, Rodders. I'm a comedian. I'm a promoter of the Stand and Deliver Comedy Club. I'm a radio presenter, a voice actor, and uh, many other things. I'm also somewhat self-indulgent, as uh, here is me being interviewed by my incredibly professional girlfriend, Jordan. This is the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast. As you will have noticed, I am not Rodders. Rodders has not had a sex change. My name is Jordan and I'm Rodders' girlfriend. And lockdown has sent us all very, very bored. So we thought it'd be really fun activity for us and maybe for one of the listeners uh, to sit down and have a chat to the spiritual leader, head honcho extraordinaire, uh, of the Stand and Deliver Comedy Club. And also Rodders is a stand-up comedian in his own right as well. Uh, have I described you, g- giving you the appropriate introduction? I-, I think so. Those are all the monikers I've assigned to myself. Uh, spiritual leader now being the most active, seeing as being a comedian in the traditional sense is uh, completely illegal. Indeed so, yeah, it is. I-, I can offer spiritual guidance over uh, Twitter, I believe. That's all I'm allowed to do at the moment. Um, what's your Twitter handle for spiritual uh, guidance? <laughs> at Rodders. <laughs> Excellent. So at Rodders for spiritual guidance from here on out. And also, as I was uh, doing some prep for this interview, because I I did, I I sat down, I had a pen and paper and everything, and I had to have a ponder about you. (laughs) Um, You've you've had quite quite an interesting creative life. Um, Can you talk us through some of your other creative jobs as well? Just a brief brief intro of the other things that you got up to and get up to. Anything that isn't stand-up, basically. Yeah. Uh, I was I was in well, I won, I was nine. All I wanted to do was be on the radio because I, I saw I was never particularly good at school, very dyslexic, uh, so couldn't like express myself by writing stories. And then I saw these people that would just sit in a room with a microphone, and everyone would listen to them in the in the local town, and and that just looked like the coolest job in the world. I remember I got, I got a tour mm. of Two Ten FM by the then breakfast presenter guy harris and it just looked like the most magical powerful interesting fun job one one could ever have so that's annoying <laughs> when i decided and then uh, a few years later at the age of i guess 19 once i got out of university 19 20 uh, oh no that's when i would have won, 21 that's when i would have graduated uh i uh, ended up as a being a local radio presenter and i worked on various radio stations including uh, radio 2 uh, the Breeze Network, Radio 107, and a, and a few others. And uh, at the moment, uh, I sort of do radio stuff bits and bobs here because mo- annoyingly, every station I've worked on is now closed. I I defend that that's not. Oh, my, it's not, what have you done? Not, not my fault. That is just the way way of the industry. <laughs> uh, but I still do some stuff for uh, Kiss FM in Portugal, and I'm a proud volunteer on a hospital radio Reading as well. So I I still get my radio fix. I'm just thankfully not completely dependent on it for my income as I was for. Uh, uh, about six or seven years. 
Yeah, I can't imagine that it's lucrative for most. Um, there's also another couple of jobs that you do. Voice acting? Yeah, that was fun. Uh, slash still is fun. When I, I, I sort of do it piecemeal. Again, it's fun just to do it now, now and again and not have to stress too much about your gas bill. Uh, but yeah, the funnest one I had, I, I got to voice the part of Tom in the computer game Beast Quest, which was uh, uh, released on PlayStation, Xbox, and PC. Wow. Uh, and yeah, that took a whole day. And what I didn't realize was when, when uh, you play a video game, if, when you make them jump or, or they get hit by a, an enemy or whatever, they'll make a noise. Someone sat there in a booth for a good five hours going, uh, uh, <laughs> making silly noises. So it's a, it's a dream job. I, I got to uh, sit in a, uh, a booth um, and just make daft noises. Um, I, I did some character acting for Fun Kids Radio uh, in, in, in London, uh, which was great fun. Again, that's a whole day of uh, making silly noises and putting on silly voices. All the stuff I was told off for at school uh, suddenly becomes lucrative once you, once you leave school. So I was just thinking there with all of the jobs, whether it's radio, stand-up, voice acting, any other bits that you get yourself involved in, it's all just making noise at a microphone. Yeah, I think that is that is the common theme. I am certainly a noise-generating organism. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way of putting it, isn't it? So if we circle back to comedy then, you've got two very distinct jobs. You are the promoter of the Stand and Deliver Comedy Club and the creator, uh, but you're also a stand-up comedian in your own right. Can, can you just tell us... How many years has the Stand and Deliver Comedy Club been going for now? Um, well, it's kind of on hiatus um, at the moment, but uh, about four years. I yeah, started it in, uh, I think, March of 2016, so around about four years. I can't do the maths uh, well enough, but yeah, it's, it's around, around four years. Started up above Smoking Billies in, in the centre of Reddick. Five years, is it? Yeah. Oh, God. My <laughs> 16, whole, and my, we're 2021 now. My whole life is uh, flashing before my eyes. Uh, yeah, so about five years. That's amazing. Can you tell me what you think the main differences are between comedy promoting and comedy performing? They're totally different jobs. Like well, one of the, one of them is is like um, one of them is is mostly admin based um, and not very glamorous. Like when you're promoting a club, you're responsible for selling the tickets. Mm-hmm. Um, you're often responsible for booking the acts as well. Uh, so it's a lot of phone calls, a lot of emails, a lot of posting on Facebook. Um, but it's 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 really fun in the sense that you get to build a lineup, and there's so many good comics now. You kind of feel like a child in a sweet shop who's been given <laughs> far too much pocket money, and you can just take your pick. Um, and I love the whole thing of like building a, a lineup because if you were uh, you want each comedian to make the other comedian look good, you want them all to complement each other. And I don't mean in just like a sycophantic way in the green room. Oh yeah, I really like your knock knock jokes. I mean in a way that if you had a, a lineup that was just one line of comics or storytelling, mm. it would all look a bit the same, and there'd be no contrast, and that would make all of the comedians look objectively worse than they actually are because there'd be mm. no one would stand out. Whereas if, if you have a really off-the-wall storyteller who does these huge flights of fancy and whimsy and then right after that you have someone who has very short, sharp punchlines and suddenly the differences of those acts bring each other's colours out, as it were. And uh, I love yeah. doing that. And and then you, you what you do, you balance the perfect line-up of uh, different different wide range of different types of people and performers and then suddenly two of them will drop out and the whole thing will fall apart. That's the, that's the downside of it, actually. Um, and you spend a lot of time uh, up ladders getting lights to work uh, right before the show. Um, 
So that's um, wow. it's kind of like I, I think with promoting, it's one of those jobs where the less you're seen and the better known your comedy club is, the kind of better. It's one of those things where you should stand at the back of the room and be proud of what's happening rather than be centre of attention. Whereas obviously to be a performer on stage, it should be the other way around. Mm. You're you're setting up the arena in which for your acts that you've booked to shine and you want to stack the deck in their favour, lay out the room properly, have all the seats nicely arranged, have all the lighting perfect. Um, yeah. You're facilitating uh, fun for the audience and, and the comics because... If both both parties need to be having fun, otherwise, I really like that as a job title, the fun facilitator. Oh yes, yeah, fun facilitator yeah, and spiritual great. leader. I will put that on the uh, on the old business card. Yeah, on the email signature. When you were describing that, so there's two things that were coming to my mind when you said the absolute thought and um, creativity that goes into putting a lineup together. My, my brain was going to food and wine, thinking of a like really nice tasting menu or yeah, something. Yeah, you've got to have a good starter, or your whole meal is ruined. Like if, well, you're, if you're like if your opening act dies on his or her ass, <laughs> then um, uh, then then the whole night is off to a bad start. Absolutely. And then I was also thinking about when you were talking about a good promoter, like the the least you're seen, the better. And the invisible be. hand. Yeah, and uh, a picture that came to my mind is a conductor of an orchestra. So you know you've got your back to everything, but you're there in the shadows. Or I don't know. I think they steal the show. Rather, I'm far more oh. into, as someone who knows nothing about music. I my attention is. Uh, particularly as conducting I know they're sort of counting time and stuff but mm. I don't really know what a conductor is doing so they just look like a show off who's, who's popped up for, for arbitrary reasons and I find that very funny how kind of especially if they've normally got a floppy hairstyle as well <laughs> that swings in time with their bat on and uh, um, whereas I think a promoter would, wouldn't be anywhere near the stage ideally but huh. but then obviously, obviously sometimes I've got uh, dual roles where I'll compare some nights so if I didn't compare the my own club for years because i didn't i didn't feel i had enough experience and i wanted because most people wrongly or rightly they start a comedy night to give themselves stage time right. whereas like obviously i've benefited from that and i've got i've booked myself to and uh, i've got so i haven't you know it's not that i haven't done that but for a long time i wouldn't book myself as mc because i wasn't good enough at it and i was far more interested in the long-term health of running a good comedy club whereas if i'd gone on and booked myself to mc before i was ready I think the show would have suffered uh, and then maybe people wouldn't have come back and bought tickets because we do see the same people every single month for the show. We like mm. have a lovely group of regulars and I, I, I think um, people's charity and my friend's uh, supportiveness will only go too far. If I went <laughs> on and wasn't very good, mm. then I remember the first time I emceed it, it was um, with posters on the wall for it. I'm really awful in the fact that I put my old uh, comedy club posters up uh, back on the 2nd of february uh i don't know what year because i don't write years on posters i'm guessing <laughs> guessing this was like ah stupid beeping phone i'm guessing <laughs> it was um probably the, during the second or third year of the club running we had patrick monaghan headlining and that was the first time i had ever emceed it and because it's like we're being a promoter you're running around sorting everything out you always lose the have to find the first act because he runs off to have a cigarette at the worst possible moment there's always stuff going wrong right before you meant to start the show um so i couldn't deal with the stress now i can just about run both without my head exploding but back Mm. then i had to get my mate lucas to run the gig for me i turn up at 15 minutes to stage time like all the other acts and i had to just act (laughs) as if i was another act because i i couldn't cope with the pressure of running and emceeing or hosting the show at the same time because of my my 
brain would have just melted. Mm. There's too much, too much stress. I would have. Uh, wow. And like I said, yeah. comedy is not meant. It's meant to be fun, isn't it? So if I was too busy stressing, I couldn't have fun. So I needed to put myself in a take the pressure off myself and uh, uh, get older. Lucas to do all the running around and going up ladders for me. Excellent. Sounds strategic and sensible. In terms of booking comedians, how how do you go about sourcing them? How do you procure or what's your what's your creative process with that? Where do you find them? Uh, a very good tactic I had for a long time was I'd book, get myself booked to compete in competitions, usually in London, and then I would book the comedians who eliminated me out of the right uh, out of the rounds. Um, mm. <laughs> so yeah, I, I would uh, strategically go and lose competitions. Uh, you know, I discovered amazing acts like uh, Michael Odawali, who's just just been on the telly fairly recently. Oh. Uh, yeah. Lauren Patterson is another person who knocked me out of a, a final, uh, or no, jo- not, not even a final. A first... She was Geordie. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah she knocked me out of a, a heat of the Leicester. I want to say the Leicester Square New Comedian of the Year. Um, so yes, if you want to get booked at the club, uh, <laughs> knock me out of a competition. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I, I watch stuff. We do take emails. People, comedians, email us all all the time, uh, which is difficult because. We, there are far more comedians than there are spots because it's only a monthly show. So that's really hard having to say no to people or just having to not reply. <laughs> um, but yeah, I go out and I watch stuff. And also uh, my uh, I, I have a, a, a very select group of comedians that I trust to give me recommendations because you've got to be careful that. People assume that a talented comedian would be able to give a recommendation. Whereas uh, you could ask the best comedian in the world, but quite often they will just recommend their friend and their friend mm. will be terrible at comedy. Uh, so I have a very short list of comedians who I would who I would message and say, who do you think's good at the moment? Who's new? Who have I overlooked? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then we, we sort of uh, we have a... There's a couple of promoters that I uh, pool resources and uh, bookings with. Excellent, excellent. That leads me nicely into a question that I've, I've actually been dying to ask you about the comedy circuit generally. And you can answer this as a promoter or a comedian, or you're probably going to do both because you are both. But do you find generally that the comedy circuit is collaborative or is it more competitive? Um, I think it's, well, from an act's perspective, I think... I think it's it's quite business-like. I don't think it's cutthroat in the sense people aren't... Unless it's a competition, then the whole atmosphere is a kind of soured. Competition atmosphere is always a bit tense because you're you're being put on stage and you're being judged in an even more sort of numerical way than usual. Whereas usually you're being judged in virtue of whether they laugh at you. Uh, if you, you know, they laugh, you're good. If they don't laugh or you get booed off, you're rubbish. That's mm-hmm. fine. But then to have voting and, and make it look like it's more of an objective thing that makes the atmosphere rather rather difficult but comedians are often quite business-like and they don't really want like you'd never want the comedian to go on before you to completely fail or do terribly mm. uh, for empathy reasons and also <laughs> because it would make it difficult for you but equally you never want them to do too well i'll be honest if, if a comedian absolutely smashes it and i have to follow them i'm like Oh dear! Like I remember the um, uh, the hot water comedy club in Liverpool. I remember the the uh, everyone was just doing five to ten minutes, and I I was uh, really excited about going on. And then uh, the lineup was drawn, and a guy that went on before me was a guy known as well known as is his name Jeff Boys, uh, twenty year plus uh, jonglers veteran, uh, did like <laughs> a most amazing and relatable 
set of, I think about air travel and airline food, completely <laughs> blew the roof off the place. And then I sort of toddled onto the stage <laughs> to try do some whimsy. Um, and it kind of like, it didn't do me any favours how well he did before me. Mm. Um, particularly the, the styles are also too, too different. Um, and my sort of lack of experience was just highlighted. Um, and I, I knocked a glass over in the green room as well. So that, that entire uh, night was quite difficult. Well, before or after you went on? Uh, before. The whole the whole thing was just oh. very stressful. Because um, you, you have to do two gigs in one night. So you have to literally run up a hill to another bar in Liverpool <laughs> to make the second half. Um, um, but yeah, for, I don't know. Promoters either tend to be quite territorial and then they ignore each other. Or they tend to be very collaborative. Especially if they're mm. like, I'm friends with... For example, Jonathan Elston, he mostly runs gigs in Bracknell and in Reading, but we run on different nights and often in different towns. So we don't really feel we're we're, we're actual competition. Therefore, we collaborate like we recommend acts to each other. Mm. Um, I've lent him lighting equipment. He lets me come along to the shows to to try spot talent. And I mean, if I copied his lineup like act for act and put them all on a week after, I think he'd rightfully be annoyed with me. But if we kind of (laughs) a bit cleverer than that and kind of because I think that it's such a small world, especially like Reading's a small town. There is no point. You're, you're, You're a bit of an idiot if you step step on another promoter's toes mm. in a t- in a place as big as london then it's inevitable you're going to get knights competing directly with each other but there's enough people to go around whereas reading's quite small yeah and there's only so many times a month most people want to go see comedy therefore yeah. you're cutting your own audience off and also it's it's kind of mean-spirited you kind of yeah you want there to be enough profitable comedy nights because the more comedy and the more work for the uh, men and the women who are gigging the better and the more the art scene grows and that's yeah. just are good for everyone whereas to be short-termist and mean and put yourself in direct competition against another promotion um in a town the size of reading i think is short-sighted yeah. uh, and just pointless ultimately yeah no it sounds like a really healthy attitude you've got there and cool that um you and the comedy peeps are working together and that's mm. really awesome like why not sounds better for everybody i, I just want to i want to entice some gig anecdotes from you so we've spoken quite a lot about your promotion and various other bits and bobs that you get involved in but you as a comedian if you can just give us i want to hear about one of the weirdest gigs that you've ever done the weirdest um oh there's loads um i haven't actually done a proper gig since october so none of these are fresh in my mind um i think most recently, um, sort of the weirdest gig that I've done, but weird in a good way, would be at the Jolly Anglers. When we're allowed to do comedy between lockdowns, um, uh, Stand and Deliver came back to do two outdoor shows at a pub called the Jolly Anglers. We we found the maddest. Can I just interrupt? There? Well, you found it, didn't you? Let's let's let's, let's be transparent about no, this. No, I actually wasn't. <laughs> I, I was going to let you uh, crack up. Yes, I found it. I then um, pressured Rodders in a very nice way, saying. You have to run a comedy show here. It's so weird and strange and wonderful and amazing and all of that. And it's like, oh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. But what I was actually going to say is not big myself up, but thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually going to big you up and say that you absolutely smashed it. Those two nights were sellouts. They were phenomenally well received. Um, I think you had someone quite... Was that Clinton Baptiste guy? Yeah, he's, 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 uh, he's been on Peter Kay's TV show. So that is a, 
Uh, I'd definitely say he was a well-known person. You did something fantastic. And the vibe there was because I think people were so hungry for some light entertainment and something to do that we did all brave the cold. We had the owner serving mauled wine in the middle of October and you just did it. It was more than a comedy show, like being that it was an event. You know, yeah, that's... it was it was unreal, like coming together and everyone yeah. just like the only purpose in this is just to have fun. And like it was all pretty good value and people were just, I think, relieved to be allowed out for a bit. Um, but yeah, we the, the, I've got to set the scene, the Jolly Angler. I've talked about it on the last podcast, so I, I won't go on too much about it. But it's uh, uh, it was a fairly run of the mill pub with a pub garden. That uh, Jamal, the landlord, uh, during lockdown. I mean, what what did most people do during uh, during lockdowns? Put on weight, uh, <laughs> did Sudoku, or so, you know, could, to, found a boring hobby. Uh, Jamal just builds a swimming pool with his bare hands, um, and this whole <laughs> yes, uh, has decking. It looks like the Costa del Sol has just been airlifted and dropped into the middle <laughs> of Cemetery Junction in Reading. It's absolutely <laughs> ludicrous I love in the- a wonderful way. Um, and the, the first show we did, uh, it was in the summer, it was beautiful. The second show we did was in Hall- was at Halloween, so I was dressed up yeah. as a vampire. It chucked it down, absolutely chucked it down, and people's tables were being blown over. That is the most chaotic, because I get distracted <laughs> enough as it is when I'm up on stage. When I'm battling with the elements, and my, my vampire cape was blowing in the wind, the rain you was... You slipped over as well. I fell o- oh, yeah, I fell over. Was that- Not on stage. It was, um... it was getting off the stage, wasn't it? I slipped over near the... Uh- <laughs> oh, dear. And the waitresses, I don't know how none of them fell over. Um, oh my goodness it was like <laughs> there was a big puddle of mud you had to go through to get back into the main pub, pub and like that's where I, I, I uh, fell over it's just it was ludicrous as one of the weirdest ones I've, I've done recently but the, oh, there's just so many weird gigs because quite often people put on comedy nights without any thought like you'll often <laughs> they'll stick a microphone by a bar not even tell the punters <laughs> So they have comedy foisted upon them while they're just trying to have a tr- uh, quiet drink. So I've had... Non-consensual I've had, comedy. Yeah, I've had that. I think there's one one that sticks out in my mind is one of that happened in a pub in Wokingham. And I just remember this old man, I think, would rather I didn't exist because he was trying <laughs> to play bridge or something. And I was doing what, what, what at the time I thought was quite a nice relatable bit of humour about the level crossing in Wokingham. Because I I'd worked out exactly how many years of their lives the people of Wokingham had uh, have wasted at that level crossing. And he just yelled out from the back of the room, "I oh, don't give a shit." And I was like, "Well, um, I said, well, oh no, I think he was." He said, "Oh, who gives a shit?" I was like, "Well, the, the people of Wokingham uh, uh, give a shit." Haven't, haven't you? Haven't you been listening? Um, and he then he then asked for my address, which is you know shorthand for I'm going to beat you up. Um, and then at this stage, I gave him my email address, and I asked the people in the front row slash tables that were chucked near the stage area um whether they thought the guy was daft enough to try and put my email address into google maps in order to try and uh you know mount this botched assassination attempt and uh, that eventually eventually shut him up i think um but yeah gigs just happen anywhere and everywhere i have just a couple to mention briefly um right was it you who did a gig somewhere and someone was actually writing their dissertation during oh, your gig. that happens at nearly every gig that happens in Oxford. Oh, okay. It's just the height of rude. Uh, <laughs> it, it is one thing punters being abusive to you, but at least if someone is heckling you, they have an, on some level acknowledge, acknowledged your existence. 
and this oh i mean it's just so stereotype oxford this this bloke of course he had a big beard and he was there with his note he had his blooming laptop out and his papers i was like what, what, what are you doing it's just like it's just unbelievably rude it's like if i if i walked into i don't know his seminar room while he was trying to teach a seminar and i started doing comedy you know i'm invading his job okay what about what so you're saying that's rude there's also another this is great because i know some of your stories because you tell them to me um the sun in when someone had a fight and fell onto your let's call it a stage area for the sake of well it's more of a bear pit isn't it yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah that's that's the most famous that's gone down in open mic folklore that one um but i'm not surprised i've heard the audio it's absolutely <laughs> mental but it's a it's a gig run by a, a comic called jeff Steele, and jeff Steele <laughs> by by performing in a pub that had never ever had comedy before um kind of by baptism of fire has made himself one of the most robust and uh, like slick comedians going he's a very it, funny he's, man, he's ridiculous because nothing will phase him because he's kind of been to comedy boot camp in his own pub um <laughs> and like that night was i i was too scared i will admit i was too scared to play his gig for a very long time because i just heard that it was very difficult because originally they just did the gig by the pool table and you just had <laughs> men sulking because jeff, <laughs> jeff jeff's talked about it on the podcast because we'd be interrupting their pool game um uh, but th- this time they moved it to the bear pit and I thought, okay, right, well, I'll, I'll it's kind of like a, uh, a lower level down by the ladies' toilets. Um, <laughs> and, and so we did the comedy down there. And midway through a punchline, um, two blokes just started kicking off. And one bloke got thrown through a balustrade on the level above by the top bar, landed on the speaker snack, oh bent God. it with his weight, <gasps> and then nearly landed on me. And I think I think I said, oh, well, I've heard of dying on stage, but that's ridiculous. Um, I think, were you mid-joke? Did you finish a joke? Maybe we'll have to clip the I audio think, in. I think I, I, think I did. I, I think I just sort of, it was very much the, sh- the show must go on. And it was during a time where, uh, for whatever reason, I thought that, uh, especially when you're new at comedy, you tend to play up to what you think a comedian should be. <laughs> uh, so I would wear a suit. I'd wear a suit to every gig. So I looked even more out of place in this rowdy pub. Um, But that is honestly the peak of madness in the Sun Inn. And I've had some lovely evenings in there where as long as you hold their attention and acknowledge you're in a bit of a noisy environment, they're actually, the comedy club has been there for, I think, six or seven years now. It's been there so long, Jongle has closed twice in the time that... that, (laughs) And so there are now regulars that go there specifically for the comedy. So in many ways it's a very playable and nice gig and that's because mm. jeff was just too bloody minded and determined to to, to give up on it and uh, well, i have a, a infinite respect to him i've sure, i've actually remembered one of the weirder gigs or set of gigs that i've done um in it's, I, I spent a bank holiday in banbury uh, i stayed with my comedian friend terry green and a bar called rock the attic was doing a three day long comedy marathon in which you just have there'd be no compare but you just have comic after comic after comic after comic some doing an hour some doing 15 minutes some doing something in between for three days straight and it was to break a world record attempt which thankfully they then they thankfully they ended up doing 
Um, and you had Good. to have a minimum of 10 in the audience. The room held about 60-odd, but you had mm-hmm. to have a minimum of 10, which is no mean feat at 4 or 5 in the morning. Um, and I, I, could, I performed three times for them, once at 1am, once at 8am, or once at like 6pm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the first one I did, I was well, I was told my stage time was 2am, 2, 2 so I was just at the bar going over what my set was going to be, uh, and it turns out I needn't have bothered because I then got a tap on the shoulder of someone wearing a headset and holding a clipboard going, oh, you've got to go on now. So I was just thrown on, go <laughs> go through the curtain, up the aisle, onto the stage. And immediately a drunk man drops a tray of drinks on the stage. I mean, it goes absolutely everywhere. And then there's... Well, poor... At least it wasn't you knocking something <laughs> no, over. No, no, I, I was utterly blameless. I was a victim of circumstance. Um and then uh, the barmaid, uh, Fiona, her name was, and probably still is, uh, <laughs> came running onto the stage and started desperately trying to clean up this mess. And she was just down on all fours, sweeping up the glass and mopping it. And I was like, well, there's no point me doing a set now, is there? So I started berating her. I was like, well, I said to her, how dare you marry without my permission? And we ended up just enacting a Chekhov-style play. And uh, Fiona looked up at me and didn't know what else to do. So she just handed me the sopping roll of kitchen roll. (laughs) (laughs) And we ended up acting out a play together. Um, And it was just the most bizarre, fun, in the moment thing. I've done this. It was one o'clock in the morning. So the audience were absolutely feral. They were completely (laughs) balmy. Mostly in a a silly way rather than an aggressive way. Because you do get drunks that get aggressive at gigs. These lot were just like... They were just incredibly silly. It was like a, a, a room of very silly children, uh, but yeah, it was it was great fun. Um, yeah, that's probably one of the weirdest gigs I've done. Worst gig? Uh, Basingstoke. Uh, Straight in there. Yes. No hesitance. Didn't <laughs> yeah, I think this about... was the first time I'd. Uh, <laughs> thought, yeah, it was quite horrific. I was booed off by 112 people Ouch. in Basingstoke, and really, in hindsight, I shouldn't have been on the lineup. They were far more <laughs> like it was Nick Page that was headlining. Steven Allen was was I think was opening, and it was a fully professional lineup. And I hadn't been going very long, uh, and I go on and managed about six of my ten minutes, and they just didn't care. I'm like, I just was totally unprepared for it because I'd, I'd had gigs that hadn't gone brilliantly, but I'd never had one that had gone that badly because mm-hmm. I'd often been performing at open mics in front of other comics. Mm-hmm. And also that this, this gig was just, I mean, no one did brilliantly except perhaps Stephen Allen and the headliner just because they're sort of big alpha male you can just walk through crowds of drunks but the audience was steaming and i went on as the least experienced act i went on after a completely unnecessary 30 minute booze break and they tur- <gasps> they turned up smashed these people so they were like baying for blood and i just had no i was just completely out of my depth i remember mm. like someone yelled oh say something funny then and i, I just had no i just i'm, I'm, tr- I'm trying <laughs> i just said no i just said nothing in my oh. repertoire it's a balance between knowing when to blame an audience and when to not like sure they were a very different difficult audience but there were comedians that did much better than me because they were more experienced and because they knew more yeah because uh, they were just and also the jokes were just funnier <laughs> um but yeah i do i did stay to the end of the night because i wanted to the temptation often i've seen people die and just leave immediately mm. but then you've got to stay you've got to watch you've got to see what the other acts do and if they can do better than you, you've got to work out why 
Um, oh, the and, commitment there. And, I hear that. And uh, I also didn't leave by the fire exit. I lit it by the front door and walked through all those bastards. In fact, one person did come up to me and go, well, I thought we were all right, and I think there are a load of arseholes. So I was like, oh, thank Aww. you very much. Uh, <laughs> thank you to that one, that one <laughs> woman who, uh, who, who, yeah, who uh, bothered Aww. to say those kind words to me. Um, first gig. What was your first ever gig? Can you remember? was, yes, it was in my sixth form. I was stuck in a school in the middle of nowhere in which, um, and I was terminally bored. So, <laughs> so I set up a performance group called Stand and Deliver Yay. after the Adam and the Ant song. And one of my mates uh, did, he, him and his friend Hugo and Josh, they were, they uh, performed duologues from Monty Python. Um, and uh-huh. it was this was the sort of school that would charge even the pupils seven quid to go see the school jazz band. So we were like, well, no. Sorry, can we just, your school had a jazz band? Yes. <laughs> I mean, that really fits with your accent, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, but, <laughs> Carry on. But also, I'm, I'm still allergic to spending money. And uh, it, it also meant that if you put on something that was totally free, then yeah. everyone would just turn up to it. Because it was, it, was, it was in the middle of nowhere in the, in the Oxfordshire countryside. So... If you built it, didn't rip them off, they'd definitely come. <laughs> so I remember I did my... Traditionally, you start with a five-minute set and you work your way up. I didn't uh-huh. really know. So I just did 10 to 15 minutes wow. straight off the back. And I've still got the video somewhere. And it's not... It wasn't dreadful. And it was good <laughs> enough for... And my, it did help that all my friends were in the audience and they were nice people and very supportive and you wrote you wrote that 10 to 15 minute set or did you yeah I, I i wrote it uh, and memorized it uh i think pretty much word for word there was very little in the way of ad lib um <laughs> and uh, yeah I, I practiced it in front of the other people in my performance group um i, I just remember the fear uh, and this was in a beautiful little drama studio mm-hmm. with a proper ray stage yeah. proper lighting rig uh-huh. and in the wings you had these uh so the um during the school plays you could check your script or look at your cues yep. there'd be these uh lights with blue filters on them blue gel frames mm-hmm. so that the it would be light enough to read by but wouldn't bleed onto the stage uh, and yeah, ruin whatever the lighting setting was so i just remember standing under those cold blue lights clutching my bit of paper in my stupid suit and wacky tie thinking with my, t- and my trainers on as well because that's what comedians do isn't nice. it and yeah. I was, I was thinking, oh my god, I hope this is funny. Please let it be funny. And I got oh, I was so relieved when I heard uh, my friends dutifully laugh. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, it was a. Uh, was... So we have boredom to thank for your comedic existence. Yeah, and then I didn't really do comedy regularly or properly until I, I, at university. I used to do it sort of ad hoc in the holidays, mm-hmm. but then I didn't really do it regularly until after university um, and. Uh, and that was mostly because radio became more and more difficult and I needed some other outlet to do stuff. And it was far easier to get gigs than it was to get jobs on oh. the radio. And um, you needed to make noise into a microphone. Well, exactly. Of, so, sort of self actualization <laughs> If I'm not making some sort of disruptive noise through amplification equipment, then do I even exist? Wow. Uh, what is... What's your last gig? The last one? Yeah, so what's the the last gig you've just done? Well, it would have been in person. It would have been at the Jolly Anglers at Halloween back in October. But on Saturday, I did, I've held off doing, <laughs> wrongly or rightly, I've held off doing online comedy mm-hmm. um, throughout the entire pandemic. Um, because, like, I didn't really, like, if people have really got stuff out of it and really enjoyed it, fair play to them. I'm not 
This isn't like high snobbery. No, oh, no, it's not really art, is it? But I just view it as something that's totally different. I think comedy really needs a live audience. Um, and I just couldn't bear to sit in front of a webcam and recite jokes in my bedroom, as most online comedians are doing at the moment. I just, I just felt that I, all day I'm staring at screens for my day job. I don't want to then spend my free time staring at screens. And I also have no idea why people would pay for that experience. Having said that, after watching a, well, a uh, promotion, in fact, we've got together on Zoom and watched this promotion a number of times, um, Felton Out in Newcastle. Oh, they're smashing it, aren't they? But they've, they've, made, they've made the experience as close to real comedy. Instead of comedians just sitting in their bedrooms mm. reading off old jokes... They've got a studio space, so the comedians actually go on a stage, they have a pair of headphones, and the the audience are on Zoom and are unmuted, so you can hear the laughter, the comedians can interact and talk with the audience members, and then it cuts to a compare who's in front of a, a green screen, probably in his bedroom. But it's all like, it's as it's as close to a live comedy experience, and that just extra professionalism and polish, actually building a proper set in a studio, it's actually a studio of a theatre, um, yeah. just makes all the difference. Um, and so the last gig I did, I was asked to do, in fact, I'm going to have to consult my notes because I can't remember what the hell it was called and it would be very rude to get their name wrong. So just as you're doing that, what I um, really enjoy about the felt now, as you say, the compare is that in front of a green screen, but it looks like he's sat in front of uh, like, oh, what's it called? A velvet curtain. Yes. Yeah. Like and it's, it's got very, the logo in the it's background. It's very showy. It's, yeah. It's absolutely fantastic. And the nicest audience, because we're all on Zoom and we're obviously, and we're allowed allowed to, like we're children, we're allowed to keep our microphones on and it's encouraged. And that seems so risky. Then, but then again, in real life, no one is muted. Therefore, <laughs> any, any, so true. there is nothing yeah. to stop in a live, obviously you get hecklers at gigs. There's nothing yeah. to, for, for you to go to a live performance, get up and scream and ruin the whole evening. <laughs> and that is something very exciting about gifting people that sort of agency. Uh-huh. And the very fact that people have that agency often means they don't exercise their ability to be disruptive. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody seems so friendly. I know, like, even after the comedy show's ended, because it's all... Most people are in the northeast, uh, northeastern audience. With a Reading contingent <laughs> invading. Yeah, and then Rodders and I will pop up. Um, and yeah, I, I think they, they made fun of you a couple of times for your posh accent. Last, uh, last Saturday, I did the uh, Bucks Lockdown Comedy Fest, um, which is they're primarily a music promotion, and I've, I've done gigs in person for the for the bloke who runs it. Um, uh, he runs uh, in pubs in a pub in Gerard's Cross, and uh, Gerard was very cross once I'd done my um, anyway, um, <laughs> but. I decided to do a... In fact, me and my friend Lucas came up with this idea where I, di- I really didn't want to just sit in front of a webcam. Mm. So um, I set up a camera for the Zoom show in which I would be in my utility room. And the whole conceit of the thing was that I'd written a set, but I'd left it in my jeans pockets, which are now in the washing machine. Uh, and I'm panicking and I'm padding for time and the whole thing just kind of unraveled from there and i become more and more hysterical and just become more and more defensive and, and manic as the uh, sets kind of falls apart in front of the audience's eyes. Um, and actually, just the fact I felt like I was standing up physically 
it felt like a like the close closer to a real performance. Yeah. I even got I even got the pre gig nerves because I I put the other comedians on the I put the show on my big TV in my living room mm. and I watched them and I think oh I'm gonna go on soon. <laughs> and I got I got that actual pre gig nervous Brilliant. feeling, which was just it made me feel so normal. That yeah. pang of fear was just so welcome. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what you're missing. That pang of fear. So I watched some of that gig. I saw your bit. Uh, you didn't know that you were muted at one point. No. Um, <laughs> so that was quite funny. Comedy, but I needn't have worried because my comedy chum Carl Richard um, dubbed over my voice. I was, oh, it's all right. I- I've got this, and he didn't. Does a perfect impression of me, <laughs> even recycling some of my old less successful jokes. <laughs> <laughs> less success i like that less successful jokes uh, but something and i hope you don't mind me saying this but what was cracking me up is your inability to say washing machine oh no i said washing machine machine, uh, mach- machine? Which, which one, <laughs> you said it right there which one's right which one's wrong machine machine's wrong isn't it i can say machine <laughs> but whenever i can i said washing machine i ended up saying it wrong it's uh, there's there's I, I tend to pride myself on being able to use long words, but there's a couple of words like skele- skeleton. I couldn't say for many years. I'd say skellington, <laughs> and when I was seven, I'd say parkark instead of car park. Uh, but I think that one is quite quite common and uh, not in any way original. But yeah, um, right. I don't and I don't know why washing machine <laughs> is so was so difficult to say. Uh, but I think it added to the aesthetic of the piece. All right, so. <laughs> Moving on, thinking about so you you must have been doing comedy. So you say in sixth form. You well, it's difficult to like if you added it all. I, I think if you add it all up, it's not actually that great a time because there's like I, I well start, about ten years on and off. But it's very on and off. Like it was, it was like it's like somebody saying they're a a footballer, <laughs> but they've been a footballer for ten years, but they only play once every few months because that's how irregular it was in the beginning and it was only until after university did i do it regularly a couple of times three times a week or whatever Mm. um because you know i don't like to say i've been doing comedy for 10 years because then people would say well why aren't you on the telly and it's like "Mm." (laughs) so what advice would you give younger rodders just starting out in comedy um I think I went for a phase of being very stubborn, uh, whereas I had my ideas of, and I kind of, I think I, I tried far too hard to be clever rather than to be funny, and that is definitely a trap I fell into. So I would try and advise myself to, luckily I had very brutally honest friends who kind of kicked me out of that one. Mm. Um, but it's just that I, I think I would tell myself to be try and be more objective over your own performance but then again i think it's like sometimes maybe these are just things you have to go through Mm, and if you if you were totally amenable to criticism all the time i don't think you'd ever form any part of your comedy persona if i was just totally if i had been totally mature and not a headstrong 20 year old and i would have listened and been open to feedback maybe i wouldn't have found any sort of my own voice and then now I'm able to listen to feedback. I, I, I think if maybe if you're open to feedback from the get-go, maybe that would be bad for your comedic development. I think it's just as if you're if you're completely closed off to feedback, 
especially the feedback that's in front of you. And if if you go on stage and die on your ass and they're not laughing and you don't even notice, that's when you know you should probably stop yeah, yeah. or, or reevaluate. Or if you got your or that um, it's a trap to fall into the. Um, I think maybe I would have done more comedy like workshops. I I don't mm. I really don't think you can. It's something you can learn per se. But I think I've done a few comedy courses later on and they were really helpful. I think maybe I'd do a bit more of that because there's no real there's no real mentorship other than when you make friends with comedians on the circuit. So it's very mm. you're very much on your own. Mm. So it's very hard to have. And of course, you can't really have any perspective on your own performance. It's very hard to because you yeah. can't be objective about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think maybe I should have gone on a few more courses, perhaps. But I don't know. I don't really have massive regrets about that you'll either be no. you'll either be better later or you won't mm. and you mentioned there about comedy persona so how would you describe your current comedy persona i desperately tried for a long I, well it's like i was saying like when i was first started you end up imitating who you like my favorite comedians were russell brand and jimmy carr so i wore a suit and used long words <laughs> and just wasn't very me and mm. it was quite obvious i was putting on uh, uh an act um and not very convincingly but i've tried to like bridge the gap like people you have to ham it up a bit on stage because it is a performance having to do something now 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 that naturally you wouldn't yeah. be doing but i would like to at least to think now if you talk to me off stage you'd at least recognize the person that was on stage mm. there mm. wouldn't be this complete because i'm not doing the thing that worried me once was somebody said oh you're a character act aren't you I was like, no. <laughs> I'm just wow. very, maybe I'm just very odd. <laughs> like, but, but yeah, I, I want to bridge the gap between, and I don't know, you can get very pretentious and introspective about all this stuff. But basically, I just want it to be natural enough so it's believable, but also unique enough so it's not boring. So you kind of, yeah. you, you amplify the parts of your personality that are um, most interesting to an audience uh like the the odd way of looking at things the the way of speaking like i'll i use silly phrases and words every day uh, as part of normal conversation yeah but i, I will i will do it to a, a huge much bigger degree uh but i don't know and i don't know if i'm being any way successful in that i'm also trying to kind of let go of a traditional sense of jokes and writing jokes because that's not how my brain works mm. Like, I'm very dyslexic, so my memory is appalling. Therefore, mm. why should I subject myself to memorising reams of material? Because I used to go on stage and just forget. I remember I, one of the first gigs I did in London, uh, Dirty Dicks a pub in Liverpool <laughs> Street. I managed... I was meant what to do, name? I was meant to do, I was meant to do five, five minutes. I did three, had to get off the stage because I'd corpsed. I'd forgotten all my jokes. They just left my head and that was just like... Oh. That was so demoralizing. Yeah. Um, but now it's like I'm my and it comes to a point where like annoyingly my ad libbing and making it up on the spot gets a far better response than some of the jokes that I've slaved away <laughs> writing. So I tend now not to do so much in the way of writing. And I went on a great workshop for a comic called Sean Morley. I won't give away his secrets, but he teaches <laughs> a, a kind of a way of improv, but improv within a structure. Uh, and when the first time you see him you can't tell really what's gone horrifically wrong and what he's planned. And he has this wonderful way of manipulating audiences into doing 
what he wants and he very much takes advantage of comedy being something that's here in his room now so if yeah. the room is really strange he doesn't just pretend he's on the telly um the, the, his performances are very unique to the environment mm-hmm. and and the setting um so i tried to take that on board so i'll i'll write premises and then i'll flesh it all out on stage rather than go up there with a whole tightly written script like i might mm-hmm. now i write an in and i write an out and the middle like when i was doing See what the, happens in between yeah i will because because mm-hmm. it's very liberating knowing if you know how to get out of something then mm-hmm. you can get out at any point yeah and that's very liberating because yeah. it's it's like improv but with all the fear that comes with an ad libbing like uh, comedians like ross noble will genuinely make the entire thing up uh-huh. um and they can do that because they've done it for so long they've trained their mind to work in that way but i'm not there yet so if i've got the safety net of being able to exit the bit when it i run out of stuff to say yeah. and it also i'm not pressuring i used to get very annoyed where i'd go up on stage oh no i forgot to tell that joke oh dear. and the audience don't care the audience don't know whereas now i'll forgive myself that because me forgetting to tell the pre-written gag meant i could have that funny uh, ad lib with a man in the front row for example mm-hmm. so that's what i'm trying to trying to do with like um and when you're ad-libbing, you don't, you can't have these oh, introspective. Oh, what is my voice? Because you're too busy panicking, and you're just in the moment, and, and you're saying. Yeah. So that's the way for me to be most myself on the stage. Yeah. And I, I'm not being myself on stage for artistic integrity. I'm doing it because that's probably the way I'm going to be funniest, and that's my job in that moment is to be funniest. And if I'm being me, then hopefully that is the quickest way in order to get a laugh. Mm. So it's really about being able to become the funny bits of yourself on stage. This is like an amplification. Yeah, so. which is very uncomfortable because you you don't you, you there's when you start there's a comedian you want to be. I wanted to be like Russell Brand meets Jimmy Carr because I just thought these guys were unstoppable joke telling machines that were just <laughs> so confident. And actually, you go up on stage and people laugh at you because you look a bit odd, or like because you speak a bit posh and it's very uncomfortable and you, you've got to just accept what mm. people laugh at you for and you've got to kind of own it. Mm. You cannot choose what makes you funny. <laughs> so you just have to learn and then go with it. And I'm still trying to work out why people laugh at me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're 10 years in. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, it's, uh, like I said, you cannot complete comedy. It's not like a computer game, unfortunately. What are your hopes for... It's probably really obvious questions I'm asking this. What are your hopes for the comedy circuit in the next you know, few months? Well, I really hope that I'll be able to stand in front of an audience yeah. and say silly things without the fear of being arrested <laughs> or fined or both. Um, no, I really just want to do it again. It's highlighted yeah. how much fun I could get out of it. And it's also highlighted in hindsight what an ungrateful sod i was like i remember being at gigs and being a bit moody and thinking oh god they haven't done this what was rubbish so i would kill for some of those gigs i was a bit sneery about now Mm. because like the whole comedy circuit has been erased overnight um and i just want to get my comedy club back um as well that is my that's my my hope (laughs) so in short my hope is that there will be a comedy circuit yeah. and I hope at least some of the poor pubs and venues survive um, and that we can carry on doing this. And I think if you have to put a positive spin on it, um, I think maybe it will lead people to appreciate the arts um, and I'm just hoping it won't be too little too late. Final question for you. 
Who are you really enjoying at the moment, comedian-wise? I've been enjoying watching the... Um, I haven't watched a great deal of comedy um, throughout lockdown, um, but I've been watching Felton Out and uh, their online shows, and Gavin Webster, I think, absolutely <laughs> hilarious. His act is completely stupid, but also very clever at the same time. Yeah. So you're kind of constantly... <laughs> your brain is is going oh like is, is he getting one over on us or has he just said something really daft and you're kind of like there's that um and he's just so quick and so kind of affable and and larger than life and like you're he's he's what i call a proper comedian <laughs> um and i i still very much enjoy paul foot uh i i watched one of his zoom shows in which he um he gets the audience members on zoom to read parts in his nonsensical soap opera the donkeys um, and it's just, you're just watching Paul Foot go nuts in his living room. And I think there was even one show where he uh, set off fireworks inside his house. So uh, <laughs> that's madness. <laughs> yeah. So those are the the two. I mean, there's there's lots to uh, there's lots to there's so many comedians I, I could name, but those are the ones off the top of my head. Uh, I've been watching um, more sitcoms. Though. I've re- I've discovered Upstart Crow about five years later than everyone else, <laughs> where uh, David Mitchell pretends to be Shakespeare I think believe that is called acting uh but yeah that's really funny uh, I've been enjoying that and uh um it's got Harry Enfield in it as well who's one of my all-time comedy uh heroes if, if you were um just uh, I mean it's very formulaic his stuff isn't it it's a uh, regional accent catchphrase lots of shouting but I love it it's perfect <laughs> Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for your time. Oh, no worries. This is the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast with Rodders. Well, that that was me um, and Jordan. Um, uh, thanks very much, me and Jordan. Uh, passed, a, passed almost an hour, didn't it? <laughs> uh, right, so a few more bits and bobs to tidy up. I have to give a... I want to give a long, long, long over... I want to give a long overdue thank you to Rakius Travels on TripAdvisor. I know your real name, I think, because you're one of our Stand and Deliver regulars, but I won't reveal your identity. You're obviously keeping it uh, secret. But uh, she was kind enough to uh, leave a review on the Jolly Anglers TripAdvisor page. Uh, The Jolly Anglers, of course, being our venue for our last uh, load of outdoor shows that happened in October and uh, September uh, of of last year. And uh, you wrote a nice review about the the venue and mentioned the comedy club so thanks very much for that little things like that honestly really make a difference to a certain change in optimization and helps get the word out well this is usually the part of the podcast where i go on about how we've got another show coming up we've got loads of great acts coming down etc etc and uh, you sure buy quick uh, buy tickets quick 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 uh but alas <laughs> as a uh, our leader says all too often um, the uh, uh, the art of comedy is still very much illegal for now. It's coming back and uh, that's about as specific as I can be. But rest assured, uh, the Stand and Deliver Comedy Club will return to deliver the laughs to the town of Reading uh, at some point in the future. That's about as specific as I can be, but it is definitely going to come back. And as soon as we have proper news, uh, we will tell you. We will shout it from the uh, rooftops, Pro- probably literally. It might, might, might be our next uh, marketing campaign. Stick in intern Reggie on, on a roof with a megaphone. And uh, I hope the police helicopter doesn't uh, bash him off the roof. Um, so as soon as uh, we have some actual proper news to break to you, uh, we'll put it all over our socials. And uh, in fact, the first people to know and the first people... 
uh, who managed to get tickets to our last lot of shows, which sold out very quickly, were the members of our mailing list. So I strongly advise you get on the list uh, right this moment. Uh, it only sends two emails a month or so when we're all up and running so you won't get absolutely bombarded as soon as we have news because uh, we will let you know uh, myself uh, Dan Collins my chief of staff and intern Reggie are raring to go again although to be honest Reggie's never been raring he's never reared in his life he's, he's probably in bed still um, to be honest with you uh, but as soon as we have news we will uh, deliver it to you just go to standanddelivercomedy.com sign up for the mailing list and there's links to all our socials right that really is pretty much it for the podcast for this episode cheers for listening Uh, do write us a nice review that makes a massive difference Uh, thanks very much this is Rodders signing out for the Stand and Deliver comedy podcast (laughs) 